0: Welcome to the Madregos Midwest podcast, Mental Health Matters, where we discuss mental health matters because we know that mental health matters. Welcome to the next episode of our Madrigos Midwest podcast, Mental Health Matters. For this episode, first off, I am privileged to be Joined as with a co-host by Yakov Cohn. Thank you, Yakov, for uh, joining me on this this co-hosting event. Thank you so much for having me co-host with you, sir. So about it. let's tell them about our incredible guest from Joey Rosenfeld, who is no stranger. And hopefully, this podcast gets released before Shabbos, uh, because if not, it won't be true. But hopefully, assuming it does get released before Shabbos, we have the opportunity here to hear from Rub Joey, but we also are going to have the opportunity over Shabbos. Rav Joey will be giving a uh, sheer for Madrigos Midwest this coming Shabbos, and we are so thrilled, uh, Rub Joey, to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. In case
0: any of you don't know, Rub Joey Rosenfeld is a licensed clinical social worker and a practicing psychotherapist in the field of addiction, and he's known for his... Focusing on the interface between philosophy, spirituality, and psychology. Joey is not only an esteemed clinician, but also has been guests and, and hosts on many podcasts and video recordings, uh, specifically in the realm of Jewish philosophy, Jewish philosophy, Kabbalah, and the inner workings of the human soul, which have been listened to by thousands throughout the world. What a privilege to have you. One last note before we jump in. We thank Yoni Bellows for sponsoring generously this episode of Mental Health Matters. Anyone who wants to sponsor sponsor future episodes, feel free to contact the Madrigas Midwest office and we will get you connected with that. So with that being said, let's take it away. Yacob, go ahead.
2: Okay, Rob Joey, we are so excited to have you on. And it's a specific privilege for me, obviously, uh, not obviously to our, our listeners, but we go way back. So uh, very excited to uh, be able to have this meaningful conversation, really really delve into a little bit of your journey, your your passions and what's brought you to the point where you are today. As our listeners already know, you are someone who's gone around the world and has really spoken for all different types of crowds and has such a unique approach to, your teachings to your your unbelievable blend of so many different areas of life of, of psychotherapy, as 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 Bressa mentioned, and, and Hasidus, and philosophy and so much more that you're going to share with us in a moment. But I guess our question that we really want to begin with is where did this passion come from with what you do specifically with regards to working with in the world of addiction? How did you become passionate about, you know, working with? Those who are struggling with any form of addiction, specifically with substance abuse, ha- w- what led you to that point?
1: Okay, so first off, it's a it's a pleasure to be here. So thank you, and Rabbi it's a pleasure to uh, to to be in conversation with you, an old friend, and Yechiel, who's a somewhat of a family neighbor. You know, living in St. Louis, it's kind of we're very much connected. Um, so without kind of pushing back against all of the the praise that was just leveled, um, what I would respond to, um, what I would respond to the question is as follows. I think that experiencing adolescence in the five towns and in Woodmere growing up and being exposed to just different individuals throughout my life who were struggling in one way or another. Some were struggling with substance abuse. Others were struggling with anxiety, depression, mental health issues. What captured me the most about my experience with individuals who were struggling with substance abuse was that everything that I had been taught about substance abusers and those who were addicted from cultural perspective, even from upbringing, was that these were individuals who were criminals. These were individuals who were, you know, quote unquote bad or engaged in bad behavior. And my experience with these individuals, whether it was through friendship or vicariously through secondary friendships or through encounters at concerts or whatever it was, what I was always moved by was the almost heightened sensitivity that I found with these individuals who were struggling with this particular iteration of mental illness. And it was nearly without fail, that if somebody was struggling with substance abuse and that came out later on in a conversation or in a moment of authentic, vulnerable conversation, I was always struck by the fact, well, this was a person who I was just enamored by their sensitivity, by their depth of thought, by the mutual interests and questions of meaning and things of the like. And what it did was it triggered my curiosity to try and understand, you know, what was the correlation exactly between these people, these individuals, these human beings who were struggling with substance abuse, yet at the same point, they were interested in the same very questions that I was interested in, such as depth and questions of meaning, questions of suffering and sensitivity. So I think it was first and foremost kind of this almost remarkable discovery that in truth, these individuals were the opposite of, rude or or mean or cruel. They were some of the most sensitive people that I ever met. And, and I wanted to try and understand a little bit about what drove them to seek relief in such potent substances. And that was really the the birth of my interest in, in the phenomenon of addiction and which kind of opened up the path for me to study it more and more. And nowadays, you know, nowadays to me on a certain level and, and this will most likely be misunderstood, but with proper introduction, it can be understood. I'm, I'm more surprised by people who are not struggling with addiction than by people who struggle with addiction. You know, the, the people who struggle with addiction make sense to me. Um, you know, I, I can understand why they do such a thing. The, the bigger question is how does someone who doesn't find themselves stuck in sadness or sensitivity over the world, how they function?
0: Amazing. And it, it resonates with me so much because as a, also a clinician um, I, you know, I, I don't deal particularly with addiction at all, but that's one thing that strikes me when working with different, whatever the issue may be, you know, people ask me all the time. and I'm sure they do to you as well. How do you go home after this? Isn't it, you know, doesn't it feel so, so challenging? Isn't it so heavy? And of course it is. And we need to find the avenues to, Debrief and to, to to let that off, but I find that it it actually opens my eyes so much because every person, whatever the issue is, whether it's addiction, anxiety, depression, whatever it may be, you see the human side of them and you see how they're a normal person just like everyone else. Mm-hmm. This happens to be a I an mean, issue this happens to be a, a struggle that they have. But working with them and getting to know them helps you see beyond that. And so I can for sure in the world of addiction, but I, I, to me that applies really. Uh, It's one of the most attractive uh, parts of mental health in general.
1: Right. Absolutely. I've always I say to my clients sometimes that addicts or anybody struggling with mental health, they're not other or different than other individuals. They're caricatures of other individuals, meaning they're exaggerations of the basic human tendencies that we all have within ourselves. And with that understanding, we could also understand why the stigmatization against mental health and addiction is so profoundly strong, because it's not that non-addicts or people who don't struggle with mental health see something that is so foreign for them and that's why they're upset. I think adaraba they see something that is uncomfortably similar to who they are. And because that makes them uncomfortable, they want to push them away as far as possible. Because ultimately at the end of the day, we are those who merit not to suffer from a particular diagnosis come to realize that you know the fact that i don't have a diagnosis certainly does not mean that i am free from the the grips of what it means to be
2: human absolutely do you you described how you witnessed this in adolescence in your teenage years you know witnessing this you know first secondhand, whoever you know whatever it was was there a moment where in, in high school years, in your teenage years, that you felt that this could be something that you would delve into later on, or that you would you know be able to help people who are struggling in this way, or was it you know, did it come to you later on? How did that come about?
1: There wasn't really an inflection point where, you know the a light bulb went off. I always knew I wanted to work interpersonally with other human beings and that working behind the desk, crunching numbers, so to speak. I, I only say crunching numbers because I don't know anything else about what anybody else would do in terms of finance, numbers, whatever. But, um, but there was never an inflection point, although I do recall a conversation with somebody that I had met. Um, it was on some sort of Shabbaton. I don't even remember the context, but it was an older gentleman who was there as a madrich who had certainly suffered his way through addiction, but also had kind of developed a very healthy plan of recovery. And he was describing to kind of these young ears of mine his experience with heroin abuse, with opiate abuse. And and I asked him, you know, I had read a number of books, literature, music was always something that inspired me. So I was familiar with, you know, the concept of heroin, heroin culture, but I never understood the impulse that would drive a person to abuse such a destructive substance. And when I asked him candidly, you know, what it was that he was seeking out in heroin, his response was something that was profoundly eye-opening. He said that, you know, if you want to understand the drive towards heroin, what a person needs to remember is a familiar feeling as follows. He said that when he was sick at around the age of seven or eight and his mother came in and put a blanket around his shoulders and rubbed his back and gave him a bowl of soup, that was the feeling he was trying to recapture for himself. And the equation between the most common warm memories of comfort and the promise of well-being kind of translating directly into the desire to seek out relief through some destructive substance struck me as being a, a profound, profound sentiment. And it, it, it really helped me try and understand more and more this, this real universal desire for comfort that human beings seek and why those who are more uncomfortable in this world will seek out comfort in a way that people who live more comfortable lives won't seek out. So so I remember that conversation being an inflection point. I also remember my brother, my older brother Rabbi Josh Rosenfeld, he brought home a book. This was when I must have been 16 or so. It was a novel written by James Frey called A Million Little Pieces. And this was a a book about someone's experience in addiction and rehab and Ofer Winfrey had made it this, you know, best-selling book. It turns out the guy was a liar and a fraud and he made the entire thing (laughs) up and there was a lot of pushback against it. But my experience in reading that book was also a a very powerful moment for me in terms of understanding the inner world of addiction. Wow.
0: So... So much, so much to think about, so much to, to ask, uh, as always. But you know, you're also, uh, if not primarily in our circles, known for your shirim um, and your your deep philosophy of Judaism. Do you ever merge the two? Do you ever bring the Yiddishkeit, the spirituality, into the clinical space?
1: I do. Um, I I certainly do. Never explicitly because the primary place of my work right now, aside from seeing clients privately from time to time, is is working as the quote-unquote spiritual director at the Harris House Foundation, which is a mid-sized private pay substance abuse treatment center here in Missouri. And so to bring any organized religion into the conversation is already seen as what I would hold to be unethical. So, so the primary space of my conversations are about spirituality, but a spirituality that does not demand any pre-existing belief system. So my attempt right. and what I introduce before any class I give on spirituality is that if I'm doing my job correctly, then my words should be appreciated by the biggest atheist as well as the most religious person in the room. And if I can't seem to do that, then I'm failing at my job. And I believe that that's very much in line with the general traditions of spiritual recovery models, such as 12 Steps and Alcoholics Anonymous, um, in spite of the fact that it's not really practiced that way anymore. But what I have done, and this has been probably the most rewarding part of my work other than the interpersonal engagement, is I have been able to test out, so to speak, not that our tzaddikim need any validation, but I've been able to test out the power of these words with the clientele that I'm working with who have basically rarely met a Jew before in their lives. Um, with my tzitzis out, my yarmulke on, you know, I'm, I'm probably the first encounter that many of these people have with Judaism. Although more often than not, you know, they'll say, oh, wow, you know, I don't know anything about Judaism other than the fact that my mom's Jewish. I'm like, well, <laughs> well, well, I've got some news for you. <laughs> um, so what I do is I, I I de I decontextualize the ideas. So for example, something that I've spoken about a few times, all of my clients know who Naaman was. N A H M A N. So that's Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, <laughs> but they know that there was a Ukrainian mystic of, of a spiritual healer named Naaman. And Naaman spoke about hope and hopelessness, and Naaman spoke about the resistance against hopelessness. And they also know that there's, you know, Morgenstern's theory of doubt, which is, in truth, the tzaddik sitting in back of us, Reviat Meyer Morgenstern, Schlita. They know that there was a psychologist of the soul, Abraham Karolitz, who spoke very deeply about stoicism. And what do I care if they know it's the Chazonish or not? You know, they don't need to know where these ideas were originating from. But what's remarkable to see is that the ideas seamlessly flow right into their language. And not only that, but in, in terms of, you know, the teachings of Rabbi Nachman, these are some of the most potent teachings that these people have, have, have accomplished to the point that I have number of clients who are listening to my podcasts, you know, on, and they're like, we don't understand the Hebrew, but until you do one in English, you know, the best we'll get. So no.
0: can, can I push this, this old point further? Cause it's just so fascinating. And, you know, it's, it's certainly nothing you learn in graduate school. It's certainly not a typical, you know, CBT or ACT or normal, not normal, but I mean, sure, it's normal, but you know, typical modality that we would think of in a lots
1: clinical sense. normal.
0: Okay, <laughs> you okay. listen, I don't want to, you know, uh, yeah. but but can you, I don't know if there's a story or a specific example, but like, can you take us in almost like in session, you know, like, how do you, what does that look like? What are you telling them from those teachings that
1: you know, that, that works clinically. So, so, and I'll make a distinction between the group work that I do and the individual counseling that I do. In terms of individual counseling, when you're dealing with individuals in substance abuse treatment and the acute state of it, the 28-day rehab model, most of the time the work is generally, you know, crisis management, you know, case management, trying to figure out how these people can develop a relapse prevention plan or aftercare planning. If it's a need for so sober living, if it's a need for family therapy and intervention and education. So that's rarely the time where, you know, it becomes a deep kind of encounter with the constructs of the self, right? So sometimes very often I say my my biggest clinical skill in the one-on-one encounter sometimes is hiding my yawn. You know like that, you know, it's not really what I've learned so much in grad school, but more about how to present oneself as an empathic listener, even when as a clinician, you, you just don't you, you just don't want to listen. But in a group dynamic, I can certainly give an example. So you know, I, I, I give a group on hope, okay? So and the basic structure that I operate with is the notion that for Bill W and the founding members of Alcoholics Anonymous, in a very paradoxical way, the birthplace of the desire towards recovery is one's confrontation with the wall of hopelessness that stands in front of them. That it's only when a person confronts their own powerlessness or hopelessness in their specific situation is when they open themselves up to the possibility of something more beyond themselves. So when I'm talking about hope and I'm giving the the history of the literature and the secondary literature on Alcoholics Anonymous and Bill W and his relationship with Carl Jung and et cetera, et cetera, so then I'll introduce the Distinction that Naaman of Bratzlav made about the prohibition against losing hope versus the impossibility of losing hope. And I'll ask my clients, you know, how could a spiritual guide say, on the one hand, it's forbidden to give up hope, which implies the possibility, versus the impossibility of giving up hope? And I'll get some answers, and then I'll basically settle it with a teaching from Rabbi Nachman and Sichos Aran, Lukutam Aran. Or And and I'll give you one more example in a codependency group, right? In a codependency group, when speaking about the need to cultivate a sense of self acceptance beyond a a self esteem driven world, which is dependent upon the appreciation of others or the de appreciation of others. So we confront the basic issue that addicts and alcoholics in recovery, due to their hypersensitivity, the moment that they feel a little bit better, they want to fix every person that they've harmed, their family members. And classically speaking, the addict in recovery or the alcoholic in recovery needs to cultivate patience and overcome the desire to fix others and focus on themselves. And so I'll give an analogy of the fact that if I have a cup and I have an empty cup, I I wasn't keeping this here as a a prop. I happen to have (laughs) a cup right there. right? So if my cup is empty when I come into treatment, And then I get my cup filled up a little bit. As an addict or an alcoholic, my tendency is to want to pour out a little bit to everybody. But then I empty myself out. So what a person needs to do in recovery is sit their cup down, allow it to reach a point of overflow. And when a cup overflows, the people around me will benefit and I won't lose out. They don't need to know that that's a muscle that was developed by the Chazonish and his Igros. Right? They they, They react to that. They react to the poignancy of that message. So I say, so what do I say? I say that there was a psychologist of the soul, Abraham Karolitz, who said as follows. So they're all hearing Abraham Karolitz, and they're hearing Abraham Karolitz's teaching. It's just decontextualized from our particular space of faith, which they certainly don't need to know. So what I find over and over and over is that our teachers and our tzaddikim have messages, and that, and that's beyond the fact that everything I say is informed by our tradition. That's you know, that's even that when I'm not being explicit about it, I think it's all rooted in Torah. But even the teachings themselves, you know, a person can write a psychological textbook if they take the time to translate the teachings of Rabbi Nachman.
0: I think in your next trip to Chicago, you're going to need to come to Madrigos and give us a staff training. <laughs> but the, we'll we'll talk about different. I mean, it would
1: be the blind leading the blind. That's all. I can.
2: <laughs> the, it's so powerful just to hear that. And I'm sure our listeners feel the same way as I do, is that their emotional response to what you're saying, I mean, just what you, how you really bring these ideas, these concepts, you know, whoever the, whatever the writings are that you're using, whatever the, you know, the ideas, the concepts from these tzaddikim that you're bringing into your group sessions or, you know, into these clinical contexts, you clearly, this, these ideas are not, something that is in a book somewhere. These ideas are a part and parcel of who you are. And it's clear listening to you because, and, and, if, and in any context, any conversation that you're having with someone that you're trying to help, if this naturally just comes up as, you know, the, the I don't know what it is, the, the, the beginning of how you are going to help them, the beginning of their hope, the beginning of their new path, it's going to start with the, the ideas that inspired you so my question, I guess, is how did how'd you get to that point? How, what was it that really inspired you, not just as, OK, someone could be inspired by a, Jew, a story and, and you know, a Jewish idea, an idea from you know, Hasidus that was really beautiful and wow, that was amazing. And I'm going to take it home with me. I'm going to tell it over to someone. How did you, how, what inspired you to the point where it has become so much a part of who you are, the essence of who you are?
1: I think that it's very much in line with what the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous is, taking out the practical expression of alcoholism or drugs, we admitted we were powerless and that our lives have become unmanageable. You know, for whatever pathways that led me to confront unmanageability in life or kind of the struggle in this world, I came to view our tzaddikim not simply as ideas but as medicine. You know, I I believe very deeply that The teachings of Hasidus, the teachings of Panim Yisatora, the teachings of Chazal, every Pasuk in the Torah is not simply an idea of content or an intellectual idea or even a spiritual or religious law, but it's medicine. It's medicine that is speaking directly to the soul of an individual who, as our tradition teaches us, is traumatized in its descent into this world. My belief is that anything the existentialists have to say, anything that postmodern philosophy has to say is all taken for granted in the words of our tzaddikim. Our tzaddikim are speaking to us from a place where they have assumed and taken for granted that we're already broken. So when a person acknowledges the brokenness and instead of running away from the brokenness and trying to fix the brokenness in a cheapened way, lives with the brokenness and recognizes that it's a fundamental piece of being human being. So then every word of Torah that a person learns is medicine for the soul. And if it's medicine for me, then it's got to work as medicine for other people as well. And so it's not so much limara torah It's nothing like that. It's on a certain level, without these teachings, I wouldn't function. Without these teachings, I wouldn't be able to you know, get up in the morning. And, um, and so if they work that strongly for me, so then why wouldn't they work for anybody else?
2: And the, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the. I guess just to push you a little bit on that is, mm-hmm. can you expound on when you say that we have to accept our brokenness? We have to accept that. You know, do you see value in people recognizing how they're broken, or you know, just the fact that they are? And what do you mean by that?
1: An important distinction that you would make. I think in in a general framework, all human beings are are always already broken, right? Being human is difficult. We we feel. We feel pain, we feel joy, we feel suffering, we feel pleasure, we experience loss, we experience gain. But I think that as long as a human being is honest with themselves, they'll come in contact with the fact that we do not feel the way we feel that we should feel. And there's a certain chasm between what psychologists would refer to as the ideal self and the real self, or how we are and how we would like to be. Now each person is going to encounter that gap in their own way. Some it will be more Loud than others, and the symptomology that surrounds it will be more severe, and others will live it more quietly. Now, a person can certainly numb out that noise with food, you know, television, fancy objects, denial, and all of the different modes of, you know, artificial healing. But I think there's a certain honesty and vulnerability and necessary with confronting what it means to be a soul in a world that is almost the opposite of where a soul wants to be. And there is a yearning, and there is a pain, and there's almost this existential cry of the soul at any moment that a person is willing to listen that is desiring more than what this world offers. I think that's the root of what Amunah is. That's the root of what you know Torah is all about. Then you throw into it the historical traumas and the personal traumas, meaning we have to really pay attention to the cold, hard truth that we are really, really close in historical context to the Shoah. So we're all still post-traumatic subjects. And then you throw 9-11 into the mix and what has happened in the world in the last five years, we're already in a state of post-trauma. And so I think that there's that level of understanding brokenness. Then there's a way of approaching it and realizing that, hey, this brokenness is not some symptom of a failure, but rather it's the very condition of what it means to be a human being. And in truth, even if it were not for all of these calamities, we would still be broken because a human being can never be perfect. But then that's on a general sense. And then when you deal with diagnostics and the specific ailments that are ailing a person, so then you have to be a lot more specific than just saying a person is broken because someone who suffers from clinical anxiety is not broken, right? That's just a neurological imbalance within the brain. Clinical depression is not a weakness. It's not the product of, you know, feeling the world too strongly, it's a form of mental illness. So I would say that in general, for those who live a life without diagnostic categories or, you know, medical treatment of their mental illness, so then I would say that there's just a general framework of, of brokenness and a certain level of anxiety. And then when you're dealing with the particular cases of individuals who fear these things more severely on a clinical level, so then a person has to be more direct in kind of the approach that they take with the ideas.
2: So in seeing the Torah as the, as, as the medicine, you know, I assume that you didn't always feel that way. Maybe you did. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But if you didn't, was there a specific teacher that really presented it in this way or that you looked up to as a role model that impacted you in such a powerful way to understand that, to internalize this in this way?
1: It's a a really, it's a really good question. So before I go to a teacher, I I would say, and this is something that I've echoed in the past, you know, uh, my namesake was killed in Auschwitz at a very young age, at the age of eight. Um, My grandfather was a survivor of Auschwitz. My father was, you know, vicariously traumatized and, and living survival of that trauma by being a child of a survivor. So my my life has always been very informed unconsciously, consciously, externally, internally by this kind of trauma and this growth out of trauma or what's described nowadays as post-traumatic growth. Um, but like like many of us, I think Eretz Yisrael post high school really turned me on. I had Rebeyan I had very special Rebbeim in high school. I had a Rebbe Rabbi Aryeh Kohn, who was my 11th grade Rebbe and my 12th grade Rebbe, who probably saved my life and my spiritual life countless times, you know, and he does it in his sleep. I had a Rebbe Rav Eli Storch, who, you know, had his phone under his pillow at every moment that, and they treated their jobs like emergency workers, right? And because we were, we were emergencies. Um, But then it it was less, I had wonderful Rebbeim. But I went to Or Yerushalayim OJ, and and the air in OJ, and the mountains in OJ were really, um, were really my first encounter with kind of, okay, this is this is where I want to direct my life. Unbeknownst to me, what I was trying to do was us and talking to Hashem. But I, I I can't point nowadays. I could point to particular teachers. Uh, Rav Moshe Weinberger is the the person I consider my Rebbe. And, and what he taught us is that, you know, even though we're so, so far, we have the permission to be very, very close. And then, you know, nowadays, I I attach myself to different Sadiqim and teachers. But I think um, I, when I read a book, I encounter the, if if the writer was was a, machaber, a tzaddik, they become my teacher. You know, when I'm reading, it, it becomes more of a, not meditative, but a real therapeutic encounter, you know, the, the safer becomes my therapist. And so I, I allow the tzaddikim, whoever's on my wall, or whatever my interest is at that moment, to be uh, to be my guiding principle.
0: So amazing, just to, to listen. And you know, what's going through my head, which is, I think, uh, when, when I'm hearing you talk now, and also, if I can be so brazen to say, I think one of the major appeals that you know, really draws people to your teachings is taking this spin on this reality, right? That everyone's broken, right? By nature, right? The fact that we're all human beings, right? But I think what you're able to do and offer that hope you were talking about to others is to take that and not take that as a negative, but take that as this is the reality and let's spin the positive look the beauty we have and the opportunity we have for growth so you know it's it's so easy to become negative about that right to feel so down so how do you how do you do that how do you
1: all have to people have to learn our svarim it's not hard when you learn the arizal and when you learn the balshamtov this is what they were teaching when you learn erbinachman this is exactly what they said this is not my idea God forbid, if it was my idea, then I wouldn't be worthy of being on a podcast. This is the idea of <laughs> our tzaddikim. This is exactly what they said. And, and, and you know, a person has to open the book to realize it's what they said. Our tzaddikim taught us the world is a scary, dark, dangerous place. We all know that. And the goal is to sweeten it. The goal is to move through the darkness and elevate it back up to God to reveal how truly great God is, that he contains darkness within himself as well. And so, when a person finds it written out, so the biggest nace was that I took time to learn how to read Hebrew. That I'll say, that was my effort. You know, I decided to be able to read Hebrew enough to understand on my own level what R. Cook had to say, you know, and what the Maharal had to say, and what R. Huttner was trying to say, and what the Leshem was saying, and what nowadays we have tzaddikim, Ravitchemeyer, morgenstern, Morganstern meaning it's 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 harder not to understand what they're saying. And so I hear what you're asking, Yechiel, but but in truth. But in truth, it's, it, it's, it's written, it's, it's explicit. It's, it's in the text.
0: If, if people are interested, where would you say is a starting point to get of, of this far and then have these, uh, you know, these perspectives?
1: Good question. It's a good question. Uh, the first book that I feel completely comfortable recommending, and I might not recommend any other one without kind of real time to think about it, although I'm more than happy to take the time to think and then send you a list, but I think the basic framework of what the Arizal, Rav Isaac Luria, was teaching us has so much to do with subjectivity and trauma and growth from trauma. And the book I would recommend is a summary compiled by Rav Avram Sutton, who is one of the, the bigger teachers in our generation, uh, a righteous person who lives in Telstone. His summation of Rav Ari Kaplan's Shirim as an introduction to Kabbalah, it's an English book called um, Wow, I'm forgetting the name of it.
0: You'll add it to that list.
1: I will add in, uh, yeah, I'll add it. It's I've, I've never forgotten the name of the book before. So.
0: <laughs> okay, no problem.
1: Inner Space.
0: Inner Space, there you go.
1: Yes, that's, the, that's the book I would recommend.
0: Okay, amazing. Always get to have something something practical.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: if we could take a few more minutes of your time, I would like to, to shift gears a little bit and talk you know, I, we could get lost in this depth, you know, for hours, um, at least I could, but I, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little on a communal level. Um, one thing we work at on this podcast and everything we do in, in Madrigos is, you know, addressing mental health on the communal as well as the individual level. And you are someone who, by nature of your speaking abilities and how people have drawn to you, you've gone places, right, as a uh, scholar in residence, you've gone places to speak, You've certainly made a presence for yourself over Zoom and social media and that realm. So in all of your outlets to seeing the Jewish community at large in many different facets, you know, I would ask, I guess, a two-prong question, right? What are some of the communal strengths that you see at this point in time? Um, and I guess on the flip side, what are maybe areas that as a community specifically in, in some of the topics we've been talking about Uh, that maybe need the most work?
1: It's a great question, and Halavayah should pay enough attention. Um, (laughs) What I would say is that the strength is that people seem to be willing to be vulnerable about themselves. That when people hear some of the ideas that our tzadikim have been saying, instead of pretending those words don't apply to them, remove them, people are more than often amazed to find that, wow, how did they know? Or, or how did they know what I was feeling? Sometimes more acutely, sometimes you know, it's a brother that they're bringing it up about or a spouse or my friend, but ultimately it's always about each and every individual. So they allow themselves to let the words resonate. And I don't think that's surprising. I think people are sick and people are beginning to recognize that they're sick and recognizing that we're sick is halfway towards the cure. Like the Kotzkareb used to say that there's nothing more whole than a broken heart because when your heart breaks, you begin to realize it's broken and you can put it back together. So people are willing to admit their powerlessness. People are willing to admit that they no longer have as much of a grasp of control over their individual lives and their perceptions of what life is. And thankfully or unthankfully, we live in a generation that makes that easier. You know, control has been something that has been stripped away from us as a collective universal you know, a a long time ago. We've come to terms with that. I think the struggle still seems to be that people are most interested in novelty. People want to hear something that entertains them, but people seem to be unwilling or unaware of the fact that insight does not fix unless it is applied and cultivated in an applicable way. So I I really think that a model like Madregos, which is a program and and that forks out into all different areas, but with the general rubric of being present for Jewish individuals who are struggling with mental health issues, we need an infrastructure to draw the ideas down and to apply them. You know, ideally, if someone were to ask me what a dream would be is, is workshops and, and places where people could come, not necessarily like a base musr, but you really had Shlomo Wolbe and his Talmidim, there were places that you can go to, broken down huts where you can go and just talk about what was bothering you without the Shanda factor that Rabbi Tversky spoke so much about, which is that a Jew doesn't experience mental health. So we're getting to the point where we're able to acknowledge the problem. But I think what's needed much more is the infrastructure of how to address the problem. And I think that it's places like Madragos or places like the living room in New York from Menachem Poznansky. these places are places that are offering it on a wholesale level. It's easier, than, it's easier to say, find a therapist. Because then it's a private thing. And a person might find a the therapist, might not. They might not find a the therapist who's going to offer them the insight that their soul is desiring, but it's these programs like Madregos that are really kind of pushing the envelope and creating safe spaces for Jewish individuals to see their mental illness or to see their struggles, not simply in the context of symptom management, but rather in the context of, how do I cultivate this encounter and this experience to better my encounter with Judaism, to bring me closer to where I want to get to? So I think it's not so much a weakness, it's just a lack. I, 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 I failed to mention Amudim as well, and there's the and what he does, um, but I think it's a question of application application, as opposed to allowing these ideas to be nice ideas.
0: So yeah, go ahead. go ahead.
2: So in terms of application, you know, pragmatically, what like, what would, if you are not speaking right now to Madrigos that Baruch Hashem, you know, our organization has the privilege of being involved in that area. If you're speaking right now to a parent, you're speaking right now to people in the community who are not mental health professionals who are not, you know, teaching Torah, what would you say is, you know, if you had like one or two practical tools in terms of everything that you're describing, you know, allowing, yeah.
1: So this is without meaning I'm, I'm gonna shy away from giving advice as to what a parent would say to a child and much more what a parent themselves should do is is in whatever way it's possible, find the others come to terms with the fact that you are by no means alone in the encounter that you're having with a struggling child and the fear and the anxiety that keeps you up as a result of the struggling child. And there are so many people who are suffering silently in their own homes, feeling that they're the only person in the world, unbeknownst to them, the person right next door is experiencing the same thing. And if they were capable of finding themselves in a way that avoided or kind of, went around or detoured the shanda or the shame, so they would be able to communicate. And while communication doesn't lead necessarily to an answer, communication itself is curative. So I think there needs to be much more groundwork. I mean, I've spoken to from people who are struggling to find another person who's willing to go through the 12 steps, you know, and they simply cannot find anybody. And there's a gender difference here also. There's a lot more for men than there is for women. That's an absolute certainty. And I think it's much more about people being open and honest than creating some framework in which we could come to terms with that there are other people going through this. And and, and if communication can be opened up, so then that person is going to be able to alleviate a lot of the burden that they're feeling. It won't necessarily fix the problem they're dealing with, but it will give them solace of knowing that they're not alone on the path. And it's up to community leaders to point that out to them. You know, not to volunteer information, God forbid, not to violate HIPAA, but to share the fact that, you know, there are people who are going through this and then perhaps to serve as shadchan to connect one person to another instead of just keeping it isolated.
0: Right. So so if I'm understanding correctly, as a whole, uh, on a communal level, we have Gotten to the point of accepting and acknowledging kind of what's here, the next step is let, let's bring that home, right? Let's let's take that to the next step. Yeah,
1: many many trained professionals and wonderful young lay leaders like ourselves. I mean, this is this is what we're doing. We're the generation doing it, but and all of us are saying our different things, and different teachers doing their different things. But if there were to be some way of unifying these forces, and I know Nefesh and all of the different programs that try and kind of coalesce Jewish power, but I think there needs to be a concerted effort to try and create, whether it be by way of database or whether it be by way of community initiatives. But there has to be some sort of gathering of the forces so that we can put our strengths together instead of putting out private fires in homes and individuals that happen to reach out to us for clinical help. To approach it on a much more communal level of education and information, and then to create satellite—I mean, this is all a far-fetched dream, you know—but I think that the more and more we provide the, the the lighthouses or the safe space as professionals who can provide help, the more and more people are going to come out of the woodwork asking for help.
0: Absolutely, and uh, we we have seen that, as I'm sure have you. Right, the more word gets around, the uh, the more. More we get, it's it's a cycle. The more we it's around the more That's people. The major in.
1: impulse in giving shirim on mental health and giving shirim on addiction is to to show people that this is not, you know, this is not a deviation from the norm. This is part of our tradition.
0: Right, right, absolutely. Um, so we do we do want to be sensitive to your time here. So we do want to wrap up, um, but we thank you for joining us, and we want to leave with one final question, which sure. is said a lot tonight, right? If there's one message for our community that you wanted to get out there, that you have so many avenues, but through this avenue, right? What would that message be?
1: That, That perfection is not a real thing. That perfection is not a concept in our tradition. And the goal is to embrace our imperfection as human beings and learn to serve Hashem specifically through our imperfections, as opposed to trying to escape them or numb them in all of the different ways that we do. And when we can embrace HaKadosh Baruch Hu as we are in our broken state with our natural imperfections, at that point, we can be both human and servants of God at the same moment, instead of sacrificing our humanity on the altar of what we think is being a servant of God.
0: So beautifully said. So beautifully said. And uh, Rub Joey, thank you again so much.
1: Pleasure. A pleasure, really. For, uh, a
0: pleasure. for joining us. And again, those who hear this before this Shabbos of Shabbos Nachmu Parashas Khanan, please uh, join us with Rub Joey in person uh 4 located at Mekorachayim. And we uh, look forward to hearing more words of inspiration there and many opportunities in the future. Joey, thanks again for everything. Thank you, Rub
1: Joey. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Mental Health Matters. To learn more about Madregos Midwest, visit us at madregosmidwest.org. Please join us next time as we discuss another mental health matter.